In what's been a very uh, challenging year in many ways, we give thanks to what God has done in Christ and the universal significance of that. Uh, by way of announcements, I begin with um, Christmas Eve. As you know, we've had uh, we scheduled two services at four and six, and we're requiring registration. And I thank you so much for your flexibility on that. I just want to say, registering for church uh, goes against every fiber. In, uh, in what I feel is, is right. We don't like it. It's more work for the team. But the reason we do it is to ensure spacing at the services. And I know that the Christmas Eve services, they filled up uh, quickly. 
uh, this year, and I know there's been some disappointment. Uh, we, we know that the, well, the 4 p.m. will be live streamed if you want to be with your family and gather around that, and then it will be available afterwards. But we do uh, pray that we're able to pull out of this in 2021, and we thank you again for your continued flexibility and high-mindedness. But uh, Christmas Eve, 4 and 6, those are, are now full, but the 4 p.m. will be live streamed, and, and that's to, just a word on, again, a thank you to, to those of you who've been so patient and kind in registering. Uh, the 27th, a week from today, will be online only. Uh, that's really a gift to our volunteers. As you know, we've been doing the children's ministry and relying on, on, on a same set of people for several weeks. So we're just saying thank you to them. Enjoy the holiday. We will have a service at 930. Just all of us will be at home. Then that first week of January, January 3rd, we'll be back here for in-person services, 8, 930, and 11, same as we're doing now. Wonderfully, Christmas initiative, uh, thank you. you are, your kindness has continued to just, um, we, we've marveled in what God has done through you, that uh, the pandemic's not slowed us down at all. In fact, our vision was too small, so we wanted to raise $40,000 to bless some ministries, and we're already at 43000 so we said we've got to find a plan uh, for what we can do with these extra gifts. So I called a, a group called Sustainable Medical Missions, who we partnered with uh, last year, they treat neglected tropical diseases, so hookworms that come through the feet in places in Africa and in India. And he said, you know, many of the pastors in their network are uh, in dire need. And he said several are praying for a miracle. So, for example, the country of Rwanda has had very low virus numbers, but that's because they've been so shuttered. So the churches have not, not been able to meet. So the pastors, particularly in the northeast of the country, are in very bad shape. And they said, well, we'd love to make a contribution to sustainable medical missions, right, for the pastors who treat the neglected tropical diseases. And, of course, so they meet the physical need and spread the gospel. So I hope that's an encouragement to you to, if you wanted to participate, to keep going and to bless more people both in Lorain County and beyond. Uh, we have a workshop in January. Uh, this will be an introduction, an introduction to the New Testament. Uh, well, introduction to the Bible as a whole, taught by Pastor Joe. It will run uh, four consecutive Sundays at the 930 hour, so January 10th, 17th, 24th, and 31st. And Pastor Joe's thought a lot about this topic over the years. And again, it would be wonderful if you want to shift services, they come to the 8 or the 11, and then do the workshop at 930. We'd love to have you there. So. Now we pay attention to what is the most important thing, again, in the world, and that is uh, the, the gift we celebrate, God putting forth Jesus in history, so we know what God is like, and we know what he says is true, and I hope, again, even in the challenges that we've had, that there's still joy in the heart to say we have this unmovable uh, foundation, and that is uh, Jesus of whom we sing. So Pastor Ian will call us to worship now. Well, church, good morning. Church at home, good to be with you as well. Let's stand together. Begin our time praising the King. Father, we thank you that you have proved yourself faithful. You've proved yourself just. You've proven yourself gracious and kind and merciful to the weak, to the broken, to the sinner. Lord, we thank you that in your kindness and in your power, you sent one from yourself, one who is your very son. We thank you, Lord, that um, you placed on him through his perfect life, his perfect offering to you on the cross, the shame and the sin of us all. And Lord, he crucified that in himself. 
being regarded by you as the greatest sinner. Lord, but we are thankful that because of his sinless life, he rose. You accepted his offering. And we have this hope this morning, we have this hope always, that you have sent your son and that he has taken on our, our wrath. And now for all who trust in him, you will forgive and you will cleanse. And so Lord, help us to uh, remember the joy of this truth as we sing your praises, as we hear your word preached. Lord, help us to, in the depths of our hearts, Take our joy from you, to be content, to be at peace. We thank you, Lord, in Christ's name, amen.
the Advent reading. Zechariah 3, 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, and the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. This is not a brand... Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I, and I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will walk in my ways and keep my charge. Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will declare the iniquity of this land, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Matthew 1:18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just, and, uh, just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord God had spoken by the prophets. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. Please pray with us. Our Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to come here today, Lord, and we thank you for this Christmas season where we can reflect on you coming down to earth as a child in order to die for our sins and save us. Lord, forgive us our sins, Lord, both personally and, Lord, as a community and a nation. Lord, I just pray for our nation right now, just in this time of turmoil. Just be in the midst of it. Uh, may your will be done and everything that's going on just bring peace to us. Lord, I just uh, pray for health concerns and amongst our congregation, Lord, is outside of COVID. I know there's many things still going on. I just pray that you will heal your people, Lord, that need it. And Lord, just uh, let people know that you are here for them this Christmas season. 
Lord, and you're here for them eternally. And Lord, I'd lastly like to pray for our troops, Lord, both at home and abroad. Lord, keep them safe, keep them out of harm's way as much as possible, Lord, and just uh, let them know that there's a grateful nation back here that misses them for the holidays as well. And we just ask all these things in your name. Amen.
You can be seated. Well, we've come to the fourth Sunday in Advent and recognizing Christmas, not just a fun thing to celebrate during this December month, but rather for the Christ follower, the very pivotal moment of history. And we've been bolstering this claim by saying that God had long predicted uh, the sending forth of his son uh, in human likeness. If you remember, even a short time ago, we were looking at the opening pages of the Bible and the doctrine of origins. And you say from Genesis chapter 3, as Satan's being punished for his role there in the fall, you have this line that the offspring of a woman is going to crush the head of Satan. And you think, well, who's this going to be? I mean, what kind of person could be born of a woman, but also powerful enough to crush the very head of all darkness? And say it's not just in Genesis, but throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you have these promises left hanging. And I think for the Christ follower, you have another question kind of lurking, and we say it can make some of us nervous. And that is, well, why do I, I carry around this very uh, you know, big book, the Bible, and a lot of it is the Hebrew Bible, and it's written to the ancient Israelites. Why am I carrying this around? What does this have to do with us Gentile folk here in Northeast Ohio? And you say, well, the answer to that is that not only does the Hebrew Bible tell God's people how to behave, which we are, his covenant community, that we're to obey him, to return to him, to pay attention to what he says, uh, to trust him, but also because of these promises that we know find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. So we've now looked at a series of who are called these minor prophets, right? What would have been one book in the Hebrew Bible is 12 for us that so we looked, remember, at Hosea. Hosea chapter 3 and chapter 11 about the love of God and how he's going to send someone to reconcile us, to demonstrate his love. We looked at Amos and the judgment or the justice of God. Does he take morality seriously? Who's the just judge? Well, it's going to be in this coming figure. And last week we looked at Micah. What about God's authority and how he rules? How's that going to happen through this figure born in Bethlehem who's from of old? And today we turn to yet a fourth minor prophet, a man by the name of Zechariah. Now, we got a little bit of work to do before we can unpack it here. You see, the previous three minor prophets, Hosea, Amos, and Micah, they lived and preached in the 8th century B.C. So you can think about the year 750 B.C. With Zechariah, we come forward about 230 years. We have a rather pointed date for him that he was preaching in about the year 520 B.C. They say that's a pretty big gap. A lot of history happens between 750 B.C. and 520 B.C. Uh, so, for example, uh, the Israelites now in the tribe of Judah, that they've been exiled, that the temple has been destroyed by the Babylonians. So in the early 6th century, right, the Babylonians come in like God is uh, chastening his people. He brings in the Babylonians. They destroy Jerusalem. The temple is destroyed, the very dwelling place of God, that they're taken off into Babylon, modern-day Iraq, and only because Cyrus, king of Persia, has conquered the Babylonians that these uh, Israelites are now able to return to their land and to start rebuilding the temple. And so you think that happens about 539, 538, and Zechariah is about 520. And so he's in this context, right? The people have been exiled to Babylon, the 10 tribes that Amos and Hosea were preaching to, that they've been scattered by the Assyrians. So a lot of history has happened, but this is still a long time before the first Christmas. 
you think 520 years, you could say there's more time between Zechariah and Jesus than there is between us and, say, Martin Luther, the reformer. So you're talking many centuries of time for these promises to be left out there. And so that is who Zechariah is. He's in Persian-occupied Judea trying to encourage the Israelites, yes, to follow God, to be aware of his just character and his judgment, but also to keep going forward in the effort to build this temple. Now, we read Zechariah chapter 3. And if you followed along, and thank you to the Heath family for reading so wonderfully, you're thinking, what in the world is this vision, and what does this have to do with Christmas? And you see, Zechariah's prophecy, his preaching, is divided up in such a way where he's got a series of visions. And right there, you say, there's a, a real check in the modern mind, isn't there? Say, I don't, uh, I've never had a vision. I mean, I rarely dream. If, it, if I do dream, it's about something I did that day or I'm going to do. It's nothing lofty, nothing meaningful, nothing theological. What about these visions? And I would submit to you that while visions are odd, in the West, in the kind of post-Christian West, I actually think they're quite common in other parts of the world. That if you have the privilege of knowing someone who was raised in a, in a Muslim family, say, who's then came to faith in Christ, more times than not, they'll describe a very pointed dream of uh, a vision of the Lord Jesus. So I think of there's a friend of mine, or was a friend of mine named Nabil Qureshi. Then Nabil and I were at Oxford together. He was, um, the Lord took him home of stomach cancer, but he was a, a, a Muslim, raised Muslim of Pakistani origin, came to faith in Christ. And a big part of his story was this vision of Jesus. And if you, you know, knew Nabil or you know anything about him, say, uh, he's a pretty rational man. He was a, a physician, uh, about as level-headed as they come, and yet very clear that he saw uh, Jesus, and this was a big mover towards him coming to faith. And so before we're too dismissive of God's ability to give visions and dreams, I only ask that we look at it globally and not just uh, in a parochial kind of fashion and say visions can be very common, how God reaches people in different times and places when they say don't have access to the open, open preaching of God's word. So hopefully there, there's not an obstacle, but this Zechariah, God's chosen figure at this time, receives a series of visions, one of which we're going to look at in chapter 3. What's happening here? Now we could say that this vision is actually more like a nightmare. Because who he sees, right, is Joshua, the high priest, chapter 3, verse 1. Who was the high priest? Say, this is a colossal figure in the Hebrew Bible. That this is the one figure who not only oversaw all the lesser priests and the sacrificial system, but had the responsibility of really communicating truths of God to the people, but also representing the people before God. That the way that Israel was going, right, was largely determined by how the high priest would come in that one day a year, the day of atonement, and make amends for the people that they'd sacrifice the goat, you know, sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, say this is the role of the high priest to represent the people before God. And again, if you're reading other parts of your Hebrew Bible, you say, what does this matter? Okay, he's got the high priest here, and this goes on a bit about garments. So what, again, say, this is kind of weird. Why is it talking about the, high priest, the ancient high priest of Israel? What about his clothes? There's actually quite a bit of tension given to what the high priest was to wear. Have a read this week of Exodus 28. 
and the modern mind, you say, we have no time for this kind of thing. It's, it's going on and on about the vestments of the high priest. But here's the point. What the high priest wore was significant insofar as it, it showed somebody the truth. It, it was to be representative of who God was. So there's different, so example would be what's stitched on the high priest's garments was representative of the 12 tribes and how they were kept and supposed to be pristine was to show that they were, again, a representative of God to the people. That there's a whole lot of dimension and complexity. Say, this is what the high priest to wear and it's to be taken very seriously. And once you make it through Exodus 28, you keep reading, you get through tabernacle dimensions, and then you get, you know, say, I'm glad I made it through that. You get to Exodus 39, and here we go again. It's all about how the priestly garments are supposed to be made. The point is God cared very much about this figure who represented the people before him and also how this figure was to dress, to be well manicured, to wear these garments just right because it's a reflection of God and really a, a way of communicating to the people what God was like and what position they were in. Now, what's happening here under bold heading one on your notes is you say there's a big problem, which is why it's a nightmare. What about these garments? Here's Joshua. He's in a courtroom scene. It's a judicial framework. The angel of the Lord is the judge. Satan at the right hand, right? The adversary is the accuser. And Joshua, the high priest, stands condemned and he's wearing filthy garments. Can you see that in verse 3? Now, Joshua is standing before the angel, that is the judge, clothed with filthy garments. Again, you could say, well, maybe Joshua was just a high priest, a bad high priest. Is that what's happening? Is this a personal attack on this particular Joshua? And we would say, no, that the filthy garments of the priest here symbolize the sin of the people. That not only is Zechariah given a vision, say, okay, this this guy is not bad but actually as a representative of God's people is that they're all stained with their sin and we have to press the matter a bit further you say well um, you know what is going on here you say, is it just uh, this messenger of the Lord who's doing uh, God's biddance uh, you say you could wonder in Zachariah's man say this is supposed to be uh, the holiest guy in the land right I mean if anybody was supposed to be God's man it would have been the high priest I mean this if ever there's a pure guy it's the high priest how terrifying to say he's filthy and the people he's representing are filthy you see friends I think that this courtroom imagery is really a, a glimpse at what it looks like for every person to stand before the purity of God. <laughs> that Joshua stands exposed. There's no place to hide. There's just an accuser. And why this is so hard, I think, for the modern mind to understand is that we've greatly reduced, we've, we've made every attempt to reduce the gap between God, our creator, and ourselves. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of language, you know, God is our buddy. Uh, he's just, you know, our, our pal who's down here. Uh, we, we make him into our own image. You know, you ever hear people say, well, I like to think of God as, and then they fill in the blank. You say, you don't have that luxury, right? God has self-disclosed. He's told us what he's like. And so while we want to close the gap between creator and creature, you say a passage like this says the gap, the chasm is quite wide. That there's a holy judge who stands on high, and we the people stand beneath his all-searching eye. And you know, this chasm was brought to light to me this week. I was jogging with a friend, and he brought up the Puritan prayers. I guess he has a compendium of Puritan prayers. And he says, you know, the Puritans, when they're praying about confessions, it's not just the, 
the little things they did wrong during the week. You say, it's very good to confess those things. You say, we all have blown it this week. Good to take those before God. But much more often is that they're confessing about not having the right attitude and appreciation of God. And I say, I think that's, that's spot on. That we forget God, we reduce him to, to something low, we, we minimize our own uh, iniquities before him. You say, that's an, an, this inaccurate view of God that brings him down, that closes the gap between creator and creature. You say, this is at the heart of what the problem is, but rather the truth is that he's pure and he stands in judgment. Again, you say, well, outside of church, you know, when do you have a chance to think about this? But it is quite terrifying, isn't it? Think of all those little things that you've done in your life, right? You just tried to sweep under the carpet, say, you know, nobody's really going to notice. We know that it's wrong, but, you know, given a little bit of time, we say time's going to heal that wound or time's going to heal all things, and we kind of shove it over on, under, the, under the rug, so to speak. What about motives? You say, you ever think about motives? Very hard to discern in another person, actually quite hard to discern in yourself. Say, why did I behave that way? Was it for uh, self-glory uh, self and out of self-righteousness? Or was I uh, pretending? Or how about those sins that I committed where I had no idea of the ripple effect of how they've hurt people? You ever think of that? Say, back in high school, you say something, you know, something rude or demeaning to another person you know a girl in your class and you say you think it's just a little slur off your tongue but in the meantime she was uh, had years long of battling with that struggle that i had exposed you say don't you think god sees all that the little things that i've minimized the motives in my heart so the people that i've hurt beyond what i'll ever know all the times i've forgotten him neglected him clenched my fist at him say i like the way francis schaefer put it he said you know all of us we have our own we have our own expectations of conduct and we don't even fit up to our own expectations of conduct, let alone God's. And here we are in this judgment room. And there he is, the messenger of the Lord, standing above, and there's a very crafty accuser, an accuser who's bringing all that stuff against him. What about this? And what about this? And what about that? And here it all comes. You say, what do you have in your back pocket for that day? You know, and a lot of people reason, well, the way you get rid of the stuff on your record is you start to do a lot of good things. So, well, yeah, I know that I cut a few corners at work this week and I cheated my company, but I'm going to give an extra big gift to the Christmas initiative. You say, and it all kind of balances out and I'm a pretty good person. You say, well, does that make any sense at all? To say the cruelty with which I behave, the things that I've stolen, the people I've mistreated, I can't do a lot of good things. That's not going to take it off my record. You say, I need something beyond that. That's still, I'm still under the, the I'm still, uh, that, that's still against my record when I see the just judge. And you say, if Joshua the high priest was filthy before God, and the people in the ancient covenant community were filthy before God, you say, don't that think that's true for us too? Now, it's at this point, you say, you have a real tension with the, the common secular narrative. You say, we're, we're running right up against a lot of what we hear in our culture. Because what's the culture say? Don't go here. There's no just judge. Don't think about that stuff. The Christian says, actually, a passage like Zechariah 3 would help us to see, it would help us to see our sin and that this is a good thing. So listen to Jeremy Taylor, a 17th century Anglican. Say, why would a Christian talk this way? Call to mind every day some of your foulest sins or the most shameful of your disgraces or your most indiscreet act or anything that most troubled you 
and apply it to the present swelling of your spirit, that is the swelling of your spirit as you think about Jesus, and it may help to allay it. Say, what's Taylor saying? He's saying, no, confront this real truth of your sin. Really grapple with all the things that you've done in your life, and yet bring them before God. So we have a choice to make here as to how we're going to treat guilt and the things on our record. And so again, take a look at the secular advice. The secular advice has tried to redefine sin or rename it. So I even think of theologians like Paul Tillich. They say, well, let's just call it estrangement because sin, you know, kind of, it wigs everybody out and it's such a religious word. Let's not call it that. Let's go for estrangement or maybe just, you know, mistakes. We all have a lot of patience for that. Yeah, we all make mistakes. I wish I, I didn't turn my microphone on during the announcements this morning. Is that, you know, that's what sin is about. It's just, you know, we all have these little lapses. Is that what it is? Or how a lot of millennials now use uh, the word awkward. Do you notice how they use that word? They say often that, well, I think it's awkward with that person. Sometimes when they use that, you say it's really a consequence of uh, a, a way that we've sinned against one another. So you get my point. We try to redefine it. We don't want to use the word sin, but certainly if it's there, we ignore it. We cover it up. We focus on our talents and we focus on our self-esteem and we just say, you know what, I'm a pretty good person and there's all, 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 always going to be people that are, who are worse than I am and I, I make up for the bad things in my life by doing a lot of good things. You say, that's kind of the, that's the way you handle these heavy matters we've been discussing. Now, what's the result of that? You suppress the idea that uh, you do anything wrong, right? That's the, 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 what we're told to do. What's the result? See, the first thing I think that emerges is a kind of self-deception on the secular narrative because deep down, we know about the things that we've done wrong. I know about the wrongs that I've done to Mallory. I know when I've been a bad son. I know when I've been a bad dad. And again, the advice to just, well, let's just pretend that's not there. You see how I enter into a kind of self-deception because I'm, I'm trying to sell a bit to all of you, to everybody else, that I know is not true. There's a gap between what I know to be true and who I'm trying to tell myself that I am. So that self-deception leads to a loss of authenticity. Again, a gap between who I really am and who I want everybody else to think I am. That this in turn leads to loneliness because I know actually if anybody knows me for who I really am, they're not going to really love me. And so I can't tell anybody who I really am. And then out of that loneliness grows an anxiety because I've got no place to talk about guilt and confession and forgiveness because those words are not in the secular narrative. They don't play well, guilt and confession and forgiveness and restoration. You say, no, you minimize it, you cover it up, you blame, shame, shift. Those things are acceptable. But when we do that, think about it. Am I deceiving myself? Is there a loss of authenticity? Do I feel more lonely? Does it create more anxiety? And does my heart long for a place to say I'm guilty and I want to confess and be forgiven? Now enter biblical wisdom. What does biblical wisdom say? Biblical wisdom says, you know what? We are far worse. We are far worse than we'd ever dare think. They were Joshua, the high priests. We wear the nice garments. So we've got it all together. And we're called before the just judge. And the truth is, is that we're filthy. That we've forgotten about God. We've pushed him away. We've cheated one another, swindled one another, looked out for ourselves. And we're far worse than any of us ever dare think. But biblical wisdom says, admit that. 
take on who you really are to say, you know what, I am a very weak person and I've rebelled against God and I've hurt other people. Confess your sins before God. Recognize your need for help from the outside. Say, I hope everyone said, you know, the weaknesses in my life are not something that I can handle on my own. I not even need help from other people, but I need cosmic help, if you will, to help me out of myself. So admit my sin, confess it, recognize my need for help from the outside, and then what's the result of that narrative? Say, well, I can be secure because I'm not trying to sell a version of myself that's other than what I know to be true, that I have greater authenticity with people. I'm just, this is who I am. Then I have a life pattern that includes confession and forgiveness and restoration. And I ask you, say, which choice do you make? I'm not that bad. Push it down. Not going to think about that. Risk greater self-deception, lack of authenticity, loneliness, anxiety, so forth. No place to confess your sin. Or the Christian version say, you know what? We, we're in big trouble. They were all sinners. And we've got to confess and come clean. And there is a way that we find forgiveness to agree with God. What I think Zechariah would have us think about here is to agree with God about our sinfulness. That we're not as great as we think we are. And if a holy man like Joshua was filthy, then what does that say about all of us who plow through life not giving God even one thought? So we're to be aware of our sin. Now, what do you expect? What would this high priest have expected? Say a high priest that would have been clothed in this way not only would he have been out of a job, but his very life would have been threatened. You say Exodus 28 and 39, where it talks about how he's supposed to be, be dressed in order to go into the presence of the Lord. I mean, this guy's supposed to represent the people. You show up to work in filthy garments, you know, you're out. We expect just condemnation here. Say anybody that so does this in the face of God, you would expect God to come in and you say, you'll wipe them out. Now that would be justice. But what do we have? Take a look at verse 4. And I hope you feel great joy. Great joy indeed when you read Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 4. But the angel said to those who were standing before him, the other angels, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Wait a second here. Does Joshua have to go clean yourself up first, Joshua? Get the people together and then come back and see me. You know, have a, we'll have a little bit of delay in the trial here. You know, you, you got to put it together first. Or, you know, there's a program that we need to put you on. And say, no, it, it's, a, it's a word from the outside. It's a word from the judge himself. That those filthy garments are going to be replaced with clean garments. And the iniquity which is symbolized on those filthy garments is going to be removed from you and from the people. Friends, this is what we call grace. The free gift from the outside. To say we stand condemned before the just judge and the word comes in, right? Say, apart from our works or how great we are, or even if we're a high priest, it has nothing to do with it, but the word in from the outside says, you know what, I'll make you clean. I'll remove your iniquity from you. And moreover, look at the pattern here. I think that in Zechariah 3, you have three things happening here when it comes to how we're forgiven that are actually, we've we got to take some time to unpack because there's three different things. Not only is the iniquity removed from the record in verse 4, 
But then there's the clothing from the pure vestments. And then from verse six, you say, Joshua is charged to go on his way. So what do we mean? The first, I think, is what we call forgiveness, that I need the things somehow. I've got to find a way to get the things on my record off my record. They're still charged against me. Who, who can do that? Who can see my whole life and all that I've ever done and say, you know what? That's not going to be charged against you. You're forgiven those charges. I remove them from off your record. Say, I need the just judge to do that. And that's exactly what we have. Your iniquity has been removed away from you in verse 4. That's forgiveness. The things we've done are not going to be held against us on that judgment day. But moreover, you say not only those, now that those filthy garments are gone, you say, well, now we stand exposed. Well, not so God clothes in pure vestments, that there's a language here of cleansing. Oh, I wish we had more time to talk about this. But you say, you know how our sin makes us feel dirty? Say, you ever use that language? You say, I've met with many a man, usually sexual sins in nature. Say, I know oftentimes a very polished man. I know that he showered that morning. But he'll say, I just, I feel so dirty. I'm a polluted guy. He said, I know, I know the feeling. Because our sin pollutes us and makes us feel dirty. It's not just that I need that removed off my record, but I long for someone who can make me whole again, who can make me pure again. You know anybody like that? Well, how about here? The Lord in his grace. I remove that from your record, not gonna be charged against you, but I give you the pure vestments and you're gonna be clean and you're gonna be whole. And then from verse six, right? Thus says the Lord to Joshua, if you'll walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right to act of access among those who are standing here. What's he saying? He says, now Joshua, back to work. You're still the high priest. You go represent me and, t- and, and tell others about what's happened to you. See, there's a, char- there's a restoration here. Do you see those three moves? Forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration all come by God's grace I put it this way maybe I've told this story before it's clear it's very real one for me but my younger son Andrew he's two he loves mud puddles I don't know he's God gave him the radar of mud puddles we go that door opens sometimes even gets out by himself right to the mud puddle Uh, he just gets right down in there and and uh, so we're going outside now Andrew do not play in the mud puddle. We, we got places to go. You can't get all muddy now. Sure enough, and off he goes. Now you think about what needs to happen in that instance. You say, I want to forgive my son Andrew, that I don't want to hold his deliberate disobedience. I asked him not to play in the mud puddle. He breaks the law and deliberately uh, goes against his father. You say, I, I want to forgive Andrew, that I don't want to hold his defiance of the law against him. Say, I want to remove that from his record. But once that's done, you say you still have another problem is that he's standing there in muddy clothes. He's covered, he's freezing. So his mom scoops him up, cleans him up, gets rid of the muddy garments, puts on his clean clothes so he's warm and he's ready to go. But also restoration. Hey buddy, this, yeah, there might be a punishment that you've disobeyed me, but it doesn't mean we'll never come outside again. That you're still my son and there's another chance. We've gotta keep going. Do you see how wonderful that is with God? Say, yeah, we're honest about our sin, but he says, I'm gonna remove that stuff from your record. I'll make you clean and whole. And by the way, get on your way because I wanna use your witness and I want you to tell other people about what I've done for you. And friends, you could say at this point, 
You could say at this point, well, this is a nice dream. You know, this is a nice dream in 6th century BC. <laughs> if only it were true. Take a look at verse 8 and verse 9. So here we go again. What's happening here? Nice bit of advice for the Israelites a long time ago. But no, here now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, that is God's all-seeing, uh, that is his omniscience, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. It seems here, wait a second, this isn't just a dream. It's not just a vision to Zechariah, but it is accompanied by a promise for the future. As we've looked at in the series, see how it's hanging out there. God's going to send forth a servant who's called a branch, right? A very common word for the Messiah. Have a read of Jeremiah 23 or uh, Isaiah 11.1. 1. You say the, the, the stump of Jeff's, Jesse, right? The cutoff throne of David. There's going to be a branch, a shoot that comes up. There's going to be a servant who comes, and he's going to remove the iniquity of the people in a single day. Now, any Jewish ear that heard about a single day, they would have thought of the Day of Atonement. Say, this is the one day a year where the high priest went in. But it seems here, actually, it's not one day a year, but it is going to be, in fact, a single day where God's chosen instrument, this service, servant branch who's going to come, is going to remove the iniquity of the people in a single day. Gloriously, the dream, the vision of Joshua is not just a philosophy out there or ancient history, but we're told that it's going to be true in time. Who's going to meet this qualification? So you turn over a few pages, don't you? To our second reading, Matthew chapter 1. The birth of Jesus. You see what this angel says to Joseph. From verse 20, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this Jesus is going to be the one who saves the people from their sins. Now, you don't think the Jewish years, you say they're thinking of Amos chapter 9 and Hosea 3 and Hosea 11 and Micah chapter 5, and they're thinking of Zechariah chapter 3, say, where's the promise, this one who's going to come, who's going to remove the iniquity from the land and cleanse all the people, and oh, by the way, bring in all the nations. Who's it going to be? Well, here he is in the baby. You know what the name Jesus means? You say, why is his name Jesus? Yeah, popular male name. Say the Hebrew word Yeshua. What does it mean? Yahweh is salvation. You name the boy salvation because he is going to save the people from their sins. Here he is, the long-awaited branch, the one the prophets have been talking about. He's going to remove the sins from the people and cleanse them. And you know what's so fascinating about this book of Zechariah? While being a very challenging read, again, you say you take about 35 to 40 minutes this week, you want to read Zechariah. It is, it is one of the books you say at times it is the most confusing, but it talks a lot about this coming figure. The Messiah talks a lot about Jesus, and not just Christmas, but more so about Easter. That there's no book more cited around the death and resurrection of Jesus than the book of Zechariah. Very pointed promises uh, about how this chosen instrument, this service branch, servant branch, is going to be pierced for our transgressions. Can you see it there? Say, this is the day when the iniquity is removed. 
God sending forth his son, long promised in history, to come live among us, who God would send to the cross, right, to, to die for us, to cleanse us, to give us those clean garments who was who's been raised in victory so that we can have hope. You know, if you're not a Christian today, I hope you think a lot about forgiveness. You say, I know that there's a secular narrative. Secular narrative says don't think about it. But my guess is if you're not a Christian, you say, you know, there's something to this. You say, well, there are things that I'm doing and have done that actually I, I, I'm very scared to even go there. And if there's a just judge, I don't know what my plan is. I hope today that you see that God is merciful and gracious and that he promised to send Jesus, right? The word from the outside, if you will, says, you know, I remove that iniquity. I cleanse you. I restore you. The word from the outside, here he is. And then you come to him today for forgiveness to say, I can be right with God and I can be restored and all these things that I've been, I stand exposed that I can be made whole again. And you see that you're not gonna have any other options, right? They, they said there's nothing like this promise, God coming in history to do this for us, right? That without without uh, our, our own works, but all of him to say, I hope you'd come to Jesus today. And I was thinking this week about a, a sad story of a man named Hobart Maurer that Maurer was a brilliant man in the 20th century a psychology world, that he was a towering psychologist who was the one-time president of the American Psychological Association. And he began, as, as a non-believing atheist, he said he began his career, really he, he pioneered work in, in guilt. That as he studied psychology and guilt and as the decades would go on, he was overcome by his own guilt and his own depression. And he searched the world abroad, if you will, to say, well, who removes guilt? What is the answer to the problem of human guilt? And Maurer comes very close. He starts to attend the church. And he sees in Jesus. He says, now this is something distinct. This looks like it solves the problem of human guilt. But there's one thing that brilliant mind, Hobart Maurer, couldn't get over. That it was justification by faith as a free gift of God. He said, it's got to be more than that. And he couldn't get over the hump. And consequently, at the age of 75, this brilliant man who pioneered the studies on guilt, who led the American Psychological Association, took his own life out of his own depressions because of his guilt. And I hope you see today that guilt is something that God knows and deals with and has dealt with in Jesus, and it comes to us in the gift of Jesus by his grace, that it's justification by faith, that it's all of him and not we come to him and we obey him, of course, but we see that it's him. Don't be like Maurer to say, I want to receive the gift of Jesus and be forgiven. And for those of us who are Christians, to maybe go back to that quote by Taylor to say our sins again, do we get sucked into the secular narrative too? You know, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm just provoked and it's my circumstances that are making me bad. Say, do we get sucked into that? Or do we say, no, I think there's something here. I'm far worse than I'd ever really dare think. But God has been supremely merciful and gracious to me that he forgives us. He cleanses us. He restores us, and our charge now as Christians is to go forth and tell this message that is so distinct against a culture that says suppress it, to say, no, what? No, we, we've got to confess it, and we can be made whole and right, and it's the glory of the gospel, and it is this Christmas theme that we celebrate. Oh, Christian, you're forgiven today. We're cleansed today in Christ's blood. We're restored. May we be on our way and declare the great riches of his forgiveness.
Father, thank you very much for this promise of forgiveness. We think about this nightmare while we do all we can to not think about it, to say, what is it going to be like if I ever stand before the just judge? And there it is, oh yeah, that too, cutting that corner, cheating that person, that harsh word there, bad spouse there, bad parent there, bad child there, oh my goodness, the list, it is, it is terrifying, not even counting uh, you know, the motives of my heart, but it's all laid bare. What chance do I have? I need a, a word from the outside, a bit of grace. Thank you for making that clear to us today that you promised to send forth your servant, the branch who removes the iniquity in a single day. And that for the Christ follower that we say, yeah, we, we want to obey you more and more and be more and more like you, but to say, you know, we're still, we're still sinners in need of your grace and that this message, Lord, help us to see that this is good news, good news in a culture that is leading people to greater depression and anxiety and loneliness because they've got this dynamic all wrong. Lord, we're weak and we need your help. Thank you for making a way. May we celebrate that. We're forgiven and cleansed. May we be about your business for Christ's sake. Amen. Church, let's joyfully respond to the Lord and sing.
saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. What a joy is ours that we're forgiven in Christ, cleansed and restored. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each of you till our blessed Savior Jesus Christ comes now and forevermore. Amen. May we go in the Lord's peace.
Ashe. 